I want to welcome you all here this morning, and uh, I really don't have a passage for you to turn to, as you can see in the notes. There's a lot of passages put together for the scripture reading, and I'm just going to read them straight through when we come to that. Uh, but my goal here this morning is to help us to identify, uh, I guess you say the difficulties that the church as a whole is facing in our country, those things that have affected the church and are causing many individuals to think that the church is irrelevant. And so we need to make sure we, we understand what those things are so that, A, we don't uh, repeat those things, make sure they don't become a part of our thinking, a part of our life as a church. And then also maybe uh, we may need to repent of some things if uh, we have found these things have infiltrated uh, the way that we are functioning as a church uh, because our witness to the world is of great importance. Let's bow for prayer and we'll begin. Father, we thank you again for your grace in our life. And Father, as we have sung many songs this morning, celebrating all that we have received from you. And Father, we really cannot thank you enough. Our hearts are filled with gratitude, Father, over the incredible gift of salvation that you've given to us. Father, we ask that even though we understand, maybe to a great degree, what you've done for us, Father, we need to understand it even better, that we may be able to fully explain it to those who really aren't really grasping the greatness and the importance of the gospel. We thank you, Father, for impressing these things upon our hearts, and we ask that you give to us a great burden for those who don't know Christ. Help us, Father, again to realize that you really are the only way, that there is no other truth, there is no other way to God, there is no way to avoid hell except through your son Christ. And Father, we thank you that you've given to us that message. We thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to carry that message and to communicate that message. We ask now, Lord, that you will enable us to grasp and understand these truths from your word. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before I read the scripture this morning, I came across uh, an article as I was kind of uh, looking at various news sites uh, earlier this week on the internet. I do not know uh, which newspaper this may have appeared in, uh, but I just thought it was a really interesting observation written by a non-believer. Uh, in the article, I'm going to kind of just jump in the middle of it, and he says this, here is what really worries me. Few of these activities are as geared toward building deep relationships and communal support as the religious traditions the millennials are leaving behind. So when he speaks of these activities, he's talking about the way people are living their life uh, and the idea that uh, besides the church, uh, there's some other institutions, but he's going to focus primarily on the church, why people are kind of abandoning the idea of gathering together and, and believing in God and what these institutions, especially the church, offer to other people. And so here he has talked about the fact that these other things that people get involved in don't really... Uh, focus on and help relationships between people to flourish. And he is talking primarily about millennials, but this really applies to anybody in our culture, regardless of age. He says this, Actively participating in a congregation means embedding oneself in a community. This involves you in the lives of others and the other way around. Their joys and sadness, connections and expectations. By leaving religion... We're shrugging off the ties that bind, not just loosening them temporarily, which is freeing in some sense. Finally, no one's breathing down my neck about finding a spouse until it's not. 
Much of the conversation around millennials today does center on workload and debt. But it's our generation's complaints about relationship culture, family formation, and the lack thereof that are likely to reach a crescendo in coming years. In longer-range studies, researchers are also seeing that millennials are busier, but also much more lonely, perhaps attributable to fewer long-term relationships, exactly the sort of tie-ups that used to be fostered by churches and civic organizations. These surveys are MRIs for the soul. They give a snapshot of busy millennial life that many will easily attribute to our phase of life. But while phases pass, the underlying needs and wants will continue to matter. What happens when sleeping, working, and gaming more than our elders begins to make less sense? If we're closing the church doors behind us, then we'll have to find somewhere else to tend to our spirits and our hearts. And I just thought that was telling that this individual was recognizing not only the increased loneliness, but this increasing in emptiness and a lack of where to turn when life begins to bear down heavily upon us. So let me read to you these passages that are listed for you there in your notes. I'm going to read them consecutively, and it reads this way. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These things I am writing to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What we're going to be looking at today, and what I believe with all my heart, is that the church has always been and remains central to God's plan. It is that very specific institution, what we are a part of as believers, that God has commissioned to represent him, to be his hands, to be his feet, to bring the message to the world. That's what we do as individuals. That's what we do collectively. So the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we live makes a major difference. It is true that in our society, more and more churches are closing their doors More and more churches are in search of trying to find ways to be relevant. And it does seem, and I believe it's correct, 
that the more that the church strives to be relevant, they make themselves even more irrelevant than before. There's nothing unique. There's nothing special. There's nothing deep about many of these churches as they try to find different ways to attract people. And it becomes nothing more than just kind of a a club, a loose gathering of people, uh, a, a gathering of acquaintances, but not the kind of relationships that God seeks us to be able to develop. We need to remind ourselves that God rules over all things. And God's design is to reconcile all things to himself. But too often what happens is when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit himself is ignored. And it's not really invited, it's just kind of assumed. Christians, I believe, are often so caught up in visible success that they forget about the invisible realities of character and the unseen dimensions of ministry. Hope, unity, and repentance are intangibles. They are needed for God's people to progress. Christianity, as one has said, is a movement and not an organization. So I want, to, I want us to look at six problems of church life. There are several books and articles written on this area. Some individuals named five, some named 20, and then you have all the ranges in between. And looking at all these different points that individuals have made, which many of them are really very good, I've narrowed it down, at least from what I believe, are are six that are essential for us to understand. David Wells says this about the church and the problems in the church. The maladies that that are the result of a complex set of root causes over the last 100 years, and many whose origins are found in the Enlightenment, resulting in debilitating spiritual loss. The The compartmentalization of the Christian faith has resulted in moral compromise, spiritual schizophrenia, and a lack of spiritual vitality. The church has lost much of its theological framework and much of its spiritual depth. So what are these things? What are these problems? What is it that we can identify that has really weakened the church? And again, remember that when the church is weakened, then the message of Christ is weakened. The message of Christ is diluted. The message of Christ is losing its strength. What the world is desperately seeking after, they're not looking to the church for answers because they look at the church and we are just like they are, except we have something special that we do on Sunday mornings. And, that, and even that, in many cases, just, is really just optional. Something that you do maybe if you feel guilty or something you do every now and then to kind of give yourself a spiritual lift. The first thing I want us to look at is that what we have done as Christians is we have made a division between the secular and the sacred. Many, many individuals have written about this through the years. Tozer, Ravenhill, Akinga, Bonhoeffer, Schaefer, Carl Henry. They've all called for repentance of the spiritual status quo. Oz Guinness says this, The net result of secularization in the modern world has been to make religious ideas less meaningful and religious institutions much more marginal. Unfortunately, secularization has a great impact upon the church as well. George Gallup notes that comparing churched and non-churched Americans in a number of categories, such as cheating on taxes, inflating resumes, and similar deceitful behaviors, the pollster found this, that there is very little difference in the ethical views and behavior of the churched and the unchurched, even among the most conservative Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Beginning in verse 31, it says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, 
just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, they, that they may be saved. The idea here is that the divide has become the source of great apathy and misery in the world, as many have embraced this ungodly division with tragic consequences. That is what causes people to think that the church is irrelevant, because they see no difference in the way that we live and in the way they live. Charles Spurgeon, in 1874, in one of his sermons, said this, To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Secular, Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal, and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor, and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense, and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say, this is sacred and this is secular, is, to my mind, diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. Abraham Kuyper says this. He he reminds us that the world is owned by God. And he says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, this is mine. We need to remember that the core of the cultural wars that many of us are familiar with is rooted in the lack of a biblical worldview within the broader society. But I think we need to keep in mind that that lack of a biblical worldview in our culture is the result of a lack of a biblical worldview among believers. In Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 5, it reads this way, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So this divide between the secular and the sacred, it is an attempt to dethrone God from his rightful authority. And so we must remember then, in practical terms, that the American way of life is doomed to destruction. There's another kingdom right now that is being formed to take its place. In fact, if you think about it, when it comes to all the kingdoms of the world, whether it's American, Canadian, Chinese, or what have you, it will one day become the kingdom of God and Christ. And that is the kingdom that we are to be focused on. All the rest of the things that I'll be talking about this morning are basically... I guess you could call them subdivisions or, or kind of fleshing out what I've just talked about, this division between the secular and the sacred. Because along with that then comes what we've already mentioned, which is there's this great disconnect. And when I say the church, I am talking about the individual believers in the church. That's what the church is. It's not just some denomination. It's not just some building. It is a group of individuals who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And so that's who the church is. It's us. And so there's been this great disconnect when it comes to this because it's the crucial issue of what I already mentioned, which is worldview. Again, remember that worldview is the lens and the framework through which individuals process information, ideas, culture, values, choices, and lifestyle. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, has documented the loss of worldview as one of the markers of cultural decline in the Western civilizations. He says this, his great concern was the loss of absolute and the loss of moral carriage, courage to stand against the mainstream of society. Worldviews shapes people's values and provides them with a framework to interpret reality. An entire culture is shaped through worldview. It determines what we believe is true, how we perceive what is true, and what is of utmost importance. Worldview is more important than even worship style, methodology, or even denominational affiliation. Christians often put the emphasis on personal commitment. This has been a great strength. It has brought millions of people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But this emphasis on a personal relationship has also been a great weakness as well because it prevents us from seeing God's plan for us beyond personal salvation. So you see, without a proper worldview, the power of the gospel is confined, especially if there's a widespread acceptance of the secular and the sacred divide. The gospel then becomes over-personalized and we focus almost exclusively on salvation. The weakness in this is that the gospel has very little connection to everyday life. This has been described by many others as the fact that we believe in a weightless gospel. The weightless gospel is a gospel that reduces Christian faith to personal salvation and life in in the local church and that's all. The term weightless describes the lack of substance that connects the gospel with all of reality. One has said this, that that there are many effects of the weightless gospel. Four of them would be these. Number one, there's a loss of converts and easy believism. Secondly, there's little social or cultural impact. Number three, there's a lack of moral transformation in converts. And number four, there's a lack of unity in churches and between churches. So the connection then between the loss of a Christian worldview and a weightless gospel is clear. As a result, the gospel of Jesus Christ has no impact on our living, much less our culture. No or little effect on our view of technology, sexual morality, science, medical ethics, and environmental issues. We need to remember that God has created the material universe. He pronounced it good. We should understand that the material world reflects the glory of God. And so this idea in our minds that there's the religious and there's the secular, or that there's the sacred and that there's the material, we need to get rid of that division. We are to live all of life to the glory of God. Every aspect of life is to bring him glory. And we are to ensure that we live that way. So along with this then, what this has led to is what some have called the great divorce. It is the great divorce between belief and behavior. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, it reads this way, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. There's a call by God for us to live in relationship and submission to the great king of the universe, and it requires submission to his standards of righteousness. Unfortunately, Many in the church have suffered some kind of moral erosion as the surrounding culture has. Oz Guinness once again says this, The greatest heresy of the 21st century is not in orthodox doctrinal confessions, but rather in the dualistic divide between belief and behavior. Consistency in lifestyle is not expected in the personal and corporate life of believers. The alarming statistics 
Revealing this divorce between biblical information and one's practice are catastrophic. The effect is that many view the church now as irrelevant and a hypocritical institution. The spiritual and the moral decay of the lives of believers, the breakdown of marriage and family, the lack of spiritual depth and growth among confessing Christians have all reached epidemic proportions. George Barna says this, he says, no matter how you look at the statistics, they seem to point to the same conclusion. The American church exerts precious little influence on society. Not only is church growth failing to keep up with the nation's birth rate, but the behavior of those who identify themselves as Christians cannot be distinguished statistically from those who make no such claim. William Hendricks adds this, there's a very dark side to the recent reports of surging church attendance in North America. While countless unchurched people may be flocking to the front door of the church, there's a steady stream of the church which is flowing quietly out the back. Many of these individuals are the delusioned Christians, people for whom the faith has not turned out as advertised. And then J.I. Packer says this along the same lines. Some leave Christianity for intellectual reasons. Others leave because they were led to expect that as Christians they would enjoy trouble-free circumstances, trouble, tr- being trouble-free from hurt, and they are angry, feeling themselves victims of a confidence trick They now accuse the evangelicals that they knew of having failed and fooled them. There's a lack of consistency and holiness and sanctification that has resulted in worldliness that has spiritually jaded large segments of the population. It has caused them to dismiss the church as a hypocritical institution. The church is no longer the visible compass of how people are to live their daily lives. I have found that often, when I talk to adults about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, that I now usually have to spend a few moments in the beginning of the conversation to let them know that at least I don't think I'm like all the other Christians they know. I'm trying to find a way to help them to understand that Christianity as they understand it probably isn't Christianity. Because they have this view, which is based on what they have seen and experienced, that has jaded their view of everything that's called Christian. We need to recognize that. We need to embrace that as as being something that is partly our fault. We can't deny it. We need to face up to it. Again, Os Guinness says this, Righteousness is not only a gift imparted to the believer through justification. It is a new condition and a new orientation toward all of life that is expressed in righteousness. The righteous are those whose way of thinking, feeling, and acting are wholly conformed to the character of God. Too often what happens is in our thinking, we are believing that living in righteousness somehow is going to be viewed by the world as being either uppity or corny or something that they're going to right out reject. Even though they may say such things, what I am convinced of is the world is actually desperately looking for those who are striving to live in righteousness. They're looking for those individuals whose life will lend credibility to a message of hope. And all the while, we're compromising the Christian life because we want to be liked by everybody. We don't want them to think that we're prejudiced or that we're biased or somehow politically incorrect. We need to throw all that stuff away. We need to pursue righteousness for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their own soul. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7 from the Amplified reads this way. Therefore, since these great promises are ours, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates and defiles body and spirit and bring our consecration to completeness in the reverential fear of God. We need to remember that the New Testament knows nothing of this disconnect between belief and behavior. An in-depth recovery of biblical truth and spiritual renewal based on the holiness of Christ will bridge the great gap of this unholy disconnect. Remember that Jesus warned that words or acts alone do not constitute a true relationship with him. Jonathan Edwards says this, The external acts of worship, consisting in bodily gestures, words, and sounds, are the cheapest part of religion and least contrary to our lust. Wicked men enjoy their covetousness, their pride, their malice, envy, and revenge, their sensuality and voluptuousness. In their behavior amongst men, they will be willing to compound the matter with God and to submit to what forms of worship you please, and as many as you please. Words and sounds are the cheapest part of our religion, and again, at least the least contrary to our lust. Remember that Jesus clearly taught us that a consistent lack of spiritual change will reveal the hypocrisy between belief and behavior. And over time, it does reveal the true nature of a person's belief. When you do a study of fruit in the New Testament, we see that that, is, uh, that fruit reveals the true measure of those who are converted to Christ. I do have in your notes, so I'm just going to read through them without explanation, because I do believe that they are self-explanatory. But when you look at the fruit that is expected from a Christian, what we see is this. A life change that starts with repentance. A new connection with the life of Christ. An expectation to do good works. A new relational character quality. A godliness that displays the reality of God at work in a life. A desire to worship and praise Jesus. A commitment to be a peacemaker within the Christian community. A desire to give to God financially. A desire to multiply and spread the gospel around the world. A desire to see others come to Christ. Too often, if we see these things in the life of a believer, we think, oh, God must be calling them to the ministry. Instead of recognizing that these are the minimal qualifications of something that reveals an individual being a true believer in Christ. All these things are to be a part of who we are as Christians. To one degree or another, we should see these things being cultivated in our life. And so then the call for theological and spiritual reflection and repentance is needed so that we can eliminate the mindset that what is called, again, the great divorce, that somehow that is acceptable within the life of individuals or the corporate life of the church. Then along with that, then this coincides with it very clearly. And that is there's been a great deception that's been building for years. The great deception between decisions and conversions. We could set aside five hours to talk about this, but we won't. This great deception between decisions, which is the human response, and conversion, which is the divine initiative of God, must be dealt with if our spiritual vitality and transformation is to occur within the church. Too often what happens tragically is that we, that's Christians, have reduced the clear call for a radical reorientation of all of life when believing in Christ into a decision to get saved or to be born again. It is clear that a human response to the work of Christ is necessary, but one's response is not the work of conversion. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 
Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The danger of this deception is false assurance of salvation and a lack of transformation. The danger is that salvation is reduced to only a human decision in contrast to salvation by the will of God. It is crucial that a call be issued to church members to test themselves. As the scripture says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So the standard is for us to do a very serious inventory regarding the state of our own souls. We are to remember, we are to remember that moment in time when we responded to God, but also to passionately respond to the present work of the Spirit of God in our daily lives. It is not that you're going to find perfection. It is not that you're going to find that you are sinless or somehow having zero struggles. But we should easily recognize that we are making progress, that we are overcoming sins, and that we are at least struggling with others to overcome sins because our sins bother us. And so we don't just think back to when we walked the aisle and we prayed the prayer. You can remember that. But what has been happening since then? What has been happening since last month in our lives? There's a well-known pastor who says this about this kind of deception in his ministry. He says this, Why should we assume that people who live in an unbroken pattern of adultery, fornication, homosexuality, deceit, and every conceivable kind of flagrant excess are truly born again? Yet that is exactly the assumption Christians of this age have been taught to make. They have been told that the only criterion for salvation is knowing and believing some basic facts about Christ. They hear from the beginning that obedience is optional. It follows logically, then, that someone's one-time profession of faith is more valid than the evidence of that person's ongoing lifestyle. I don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you and I or anyone earn salvation. That's, that's not what we're speaking about. It is simply what is the evidence of genuine faith. And the evidence of genuine faith are these things that we're speaking of. The governing authority of every believer is to be the word of God. And this includes every area of a person's life. I was talking to an individual yesterday. We're talking about the Bible and some of the things that God tells us to do. And so I made a statement about uh, God's expectation for, for us as believers to, to gather together and to work together and to worship together. And so this is what the individual said. Well, I just don't really see it that way. And I said, it doesn't really matter how you see it. It's not like it's up for debate. It's not a gray area of life. And I said, imagine that, that, that this takes place, that you, know, you are, and you can, you can pick any aspect of life. And so I said, as an individual, you are, you're being asked, as you go to school, there's this expectation that, that you're going to be in class and attend the lectures as part of your grade. And that's on the syllabus. It's, it's stated there for everyone to see. And you say, well, I just don't see it that way. Well, the professor doesn't really care how you see it. It's pretty clear. You don't want to come? That's okay. It's called an F. That's it. But what happens, we live in a society which we somehow raise that up to this high level as if somehow we have a right to say, well, I don't see it that way. Now, you have a right to dis disagree with anything. This is America. 
But we need to make sure we understand what the Word of God says. Once it's clear what it says, and most of it actually is pretty clear. There's not, a, you know, there's not like a whole lot of discussions over many of the, the major things that we are told to do in the Scripture. Once we understand what it says, if you are a believer, you will submit. We will, we will struggle with that. We will obey imperfectly. But we're not going to be at the point where we're saying, well, I'm not really sure I want to obey God in that area. That's just, Christians don't do that. We don't do that. Alvin McLean said this, If entrance into the kingdom of God becomes human-centered, based on just our decision, rather than God-centered, which is based on God's work of conversion, not only is there potential eternal loss, but the defining operative paradigm of the Christian life becomes egocentric rather than theocentric. So the idea is, is this. Yes, human beings make decisions to believe in Christ. But what is the evidence that God has truly converted that individual who's making that decision? It's the life they live. We see evidence of the work of the creator of the universe in their life. We should make a call for true conversion, not just decisions alone. This one I'll go through really quickly as if I haven't been speaking fast enough. And that is that there is a problem with diversion. And what I mean by that is, is that there's a big emphasis on programs versus making disciples. The great omission in the Great Commission, which I'm not, this is a quote, I'm, this is not from me. The great omission in the Great Commission, uh, which has been the removal of the word obedience. Here's a quote. Christians are to grow in transformation, and they are missional throughout the earth. The proliferation of congregational programs over the last 100 years and the intensification and specification of need-based ministries have diluted the central call of the Great Commission to make disciples. The simplest definition of a disciple is simply the word follower. To be a disciple means to be a Christ follower, to be a Christ learner, a Christ-obedient individual. Remember that the spiritual seed of the kingdom of God is planted in the hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's cultivated by making and reproducing disciples. Discipleship, then, is a sovereign, lifelong interaction, interactive process, as well as an intentional ministry focus. Again, I have in your notes, uh, and I forgot who I got this from because there's many like this, but it's a biblical definition of discipleship. And it just simply says this, a disciple is one who is called and follows and loves Jesus with his whole self. A disciple will not dictate his own plans. A disciple is one who has surrendered all. A disciple is one who carries his cross. A disciple is one who is becoming more like Christ. A disciple is one who actively obeys Christ's commands. I believe that if we take these things we've talked about and we incorporate them in our thinking and our living, then we We'll never have to worry about becoming irrelevant to the masses that are out there that are exiting or moving away from the church. When they begin to look for answers to life, when they begin to look for comfort to the, real, to the very real difficulties that they're having, they're going to be looking for people of substance. And people of substance are those who are pursuing righteousness because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no way to get around that. A true disciple displays intimacy and a dynamic walk with God. They will exhibit faithfulness under pressure and serious obedience to follow Christ, whatever the cost that's involved. The lordship of Christ over the individual believer's life and the functional headship of Christ over the corporate church's mission, it's been removed. So without obedience built within the mandate and the mission of the church, the church can take many paths and yet not prepare any disciples for Christ. 
Dallas Willard says this about the greatest need of the modern church, which he says is obedience to Christ. He says, more than any other single thing, the practical irrelevance of actual obedience to Christ accounts for the weakened effect of Christianity in the world today. With its increasing tendency to emphasize political and social action as the primary way to serve God, it also accounts for the practical irrelevance of Christian faith to individual character development and overall personal sanity and well-being. If you want to make sure that you as a Christian or that we as a church become irrelevant, make it about politics. And you and I will have no impact on the world at all. That has been proven in our culture You can have your political opinions. You may be convinced you're right. You can even have political conversations. But do not make that your identity. We are to be Christians first. Christ followers first. We should be making a greater effort to convert the lost to Christ than to convert a liberal to conservatism. And if our greater emphasis is on, or happiness is derived from helping an individual become, uh, to move from being a liberal to being a huge fan of Rush Limbaugh, you have failed. We have failed, and we need to remember that. This last point I want to make to you is just, I'm going to read to you some statistics, which I think are, are very sobering. Because we too often think that the church is healthy. We may be healthier than some. I would like to think that we are healthier than some. But we always must look at ourselves with a critical eye. Let me read to you a couple of things. This comes from the condition of the church in America. This is what it says. Who would have believed that in a hundred years, the United States of America would go from the number one missionary sending nation in the world to the number two missionary receiving nation in the world? That's a fact. There are many, many countries and churches throughout the world that are praying for our country and sending missionaries to our country to win the loss. Did you know that? We may have known that a few were coming. We receive more missionaries to minister in our nation than all the other nations in the world except for one. That is absolutely mind-boggling, to say the least. We are now entering a new millennium. The United States is now the third largest unchurched nation in the world. The population of America, or in the population of America, around 75 million people are churched, which leaves about 250 million unchurched. Despite the fact that there are 363,000 churches in America, which means there are about seven churches for every zip code in our country. The church loses one person every 25 seconds, and gains one new person every 25 seconds. Is the United States a mission field? This is a question that's asked in another article I read. And so they say, let's take the next 24 hours and examine the case. So what's going to happen in the next 24 hours in our country? 10,800 babies will be born. 6,400 people will die. 6,100 people will be married. There will be 3,100 divorces that will be granted and 3,200 babies will be aborted. 3,400 unmarried women will give birth to a child. 84 people will commit suicide. 
45 people will die from HIV AIDS. 43 will die in alcohol-related automobile accidents. 4,615-year-old girls will give up their sexual purity. 1,300 students will drop out of high school. 6,000 people under the age of 18 will start smoking. 28,000 people are going to be arrested. 3,400 households will declare bankruptcy. And 63,000 people will secure food stamps. That's going to happen in the next 24 hours. In that same 24-hour period, 411 will convert to Islam. 872 people will convert to Mormonism. 5,000 people will join the Church of Christ and receive baptism. But eight churches will close their doors. And six will open. As a result, several thousands of people will die every day in the United States without ever hearing about the gospel of the good news of Christ. They will have never heard in this country that Christ died and rose for them. Here's a few more facts that can make us feel maybe a little worse about our country. The largest center for teaching Eastern meditation techniques is in Fairfield, Iowa. The largest Buddhist temple in the world is in Boulder, Colorado. The largest Muslim discipleship center in the world is in Brooklyn, New York. Many missiologists, that's people who are experts on missions, state that it is easier to get a hearing for the gospel in Asia and Africa and South America than it is in America. We have a lot of work to do. There's a world out there that's dying. So what we need to make sure that we do as individuals is this. Make sure that as individuals in a church that we do not accept the great divide between the secular and the sacred. That everything is about God. It really is. And it's all made by God and it's created to bring glory to God. We need to make sure that we develop and that we maintain consistently a biblical worldview. We need to make sure that we understand in our lives as individuals and as a church that there is not to be a division between our belief and our behavior. And that if there is, that is an indication that most likely that individual is probably not a believer. And that's important. That's very important. We also need to recognize that there can be a great deception when we have embraced maybe thousands of people as believers, and they may not be, because we have diluted what it means to be converted to Christ. And then, of course, to fix all of this, we can become overwhelmed with or focus on programs. Programs in and of themselves are not wrong. We must make sure that we're not doing anything that goes against making disciples or diminishes making disciples. And in fact, make sure that programs are about making disciples. And then maybe we just need to repent of the idea as we close our eyes that the church is just healthy and ask the Lord to help us to open our eyes, to examine ourselves, to examine our church. And if we strive to live according to what the scripture says in openness and in honesty, then I do believe that we'll be enabled by God to minister to the many hurting people that are out there that will be searching for answers as we seek to live this way, you will find. It is true. It will happen. It doesn't mean that people will come to you tomorrow and fall down at your feet and grab your ankles and say, help me to get saved. But what I do believe will take place is as you pursue righteousness and holiness and fellowship with other believers who are seeking that, people will be taking note of your life. They will not be thinking, oh, you're great. This is not some secret path to being praised by men. But this will open the doors that when those individuals are going through very rough and difficult times, 
they may in secret, for lots of reasons, approach you and simply say, can we talk? Or they may say in some kind of coded message, will you pray for me? And all those ways, opening the door for us to be able to let them know how much we care for them, let them know verbally what we are committed to, which is truth, and that Christ really is the way. He really is the truth. He really is the door to joy, to happiness, to peace with God, to being reconciled to him and being reconciled with yourself and being reconciled with others. We are not irrelevant. We've made it irrelevant as we have pursued the ways of the world. Let us pursue the ways of Christ and we won't even have to worry about or think about being relevant because we will be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we bow before you this morning, we thank you, Lord, for the 51 years that this church has been here. And Father, we have through the years strived to do things rightly. Oh, we've not always done it right. We have made mistakes along the way. In fact, at times we have made very big mistakes. There are times that we have failed others, times we have failed you, and there have been times that you've used us in the lives of others. Individuals have come to know Christ, individuals have grown in Christ. Many have gone on to serve you full-time in the mission field. And Father, we thank you for all of that. Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church to not just have good memories. Help us, Father, to never be satisfied with that. Help us, Father, to look forward to being used by you to being forced, even if we have to, to make sacrifices for the sake of Christ. Father, we may see a great harvest before you return. Because we do know, Father, that in the end, as our neighbors and loved ones die, as we have read that the number of individuals that would die over the next 24 hours, many, maybe it's most, are going to die and face a Christless eternity. And we don't say that, Father, to startle anyone. We don't say that, Father, because we were trying to scare anyone, but that is reality. And, Father, we do know, if nothing else, what we do know is that when one dies without Christ, there are no chances given to that individual. Their eternity is sealed. It is only in this life, Father, that one can come to accept the marvelous gift that you've given. For those of us who are the recipients of that gift, we thank you. And Father, for those here this morning who may not know Christ, we pray that in your kindness and in your gentleness, but also in your power, you will convict them of their sin and their need of Christ, that you would put a spotlight on perhaps their loneliness, perhaps what they should become disgusted or disinterested in life, and we pray that would bother them, and we pray they would realize that it really is a spiritual problem. It's not psychological. It's not emotional. It is relational beginning with the fact that we are separated from you, and you are the one that can make our life whole. And so, Father, you are patient, and we are grateful, and we're thankful. Bless us now, Lord, as we bring our time to a close, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.